We're coming in hot with inspiring guests, witty banter, and colorful commentary for today's veterans and military community. This is the Tango Alpha Lima Podcast. They call me crazy because I'm facing all my giants. They try to scare me into thinking I can't fight it. They tell me I should never even think of trying. But that's just me. I'm going to live out in defiance. Oh, boy. International Day of Jeff Daly is over. It was three days ago, and I'm here to talk about it, mostly because we recorded this before that. Uh, how, how are you doing today, Ashley? So if it's three days after your birthday, that means my birthday is this coming weekend. All right. Yeah, that's right. May 28th, <laughs> International Ashley Day. It's the first time you've that's gotten... It braggadocious about your birthday thank you yeah i'm pretty excited about it well you know the good news is i I might actually uh i might i might see you while i'm in california so we'll see we'll see we'll see what i can do we'll see what i can do okay all right enough of the pleasantries my friends we have to go Mm. to something dastardly oh so sad our first topic out the gate not really great for Jeff or I as we reviewed this. <laughs> Guard soldier who sold $200,000 caught after filing a pay inquiry, Fed say, for a Military Times article. So a member of the Michigan National Guard made his first appearance at the federal court late last month after authorities say he quietly collected a full pay and allowances for more than two years after resigning from his full-time guard status and reverting to part-time service. Staff Sergeant Clayton H. Misu Jr. remains a member of the Michigan Guard while he awaits trial for theft of public funds confirmed a state spokesman, Penny Carroll. A federal public defender representing the soldier declined comment when uh, they were reached out by Army Times. The alleged theft was discovered uh, that Misu submitted a pay inquiry about the missing part-time or missing part-time drill paycheck according to public publicly available records the 205 oh gosh 205,000 plus cents of change reportedly stolen went towards uh, child support bills credit card debt according to the arrest warrant request from the army criminal criminal investigations division agent joseph kaiser the nco resigned from the ohio national or i'm sorry ohio oh. Hawaii National Guard, big difference, Hawaii National Guard's active Guard Reserve Program, otherwise AGR program, in June 2017. Oh, man. But even so, after he became a, I don't like this turn of phrase, this is weekend (laughs) warrior. How dare they? Anywho, besides that, what the heck, guy? Anyway, he continued to receive this previous active duty pay and allowances on top of his monthly drill pay. That is a no-no. Why did you think you were going to get caught? Are you, I mean, did you really? I, why is like my brain hurts for this individual? Anyway, so the oh, Hawaii guard failed to tell the Defense Finance and Accounting Services to stop his pay. Don't you think like, any normal rational person would be like, hey, why am I getting all this paycheck? Why would you ignore wait, it for like two years? Wait till we get to the comment section because I have an answer for that. Anyway. So this individual has uh, been receiving monthly drill paychecks. On top of that, 
In coordination with the Michigan Army National Guard revealed that this individual um, was not receiving drill pay because he was receiving active duty pay and entitlements, et cetera. I, whatever. All right, guy. First of all, kudos to the writer for the weekend warrior comment. Hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. <laughs> but second of all, I should have joined the guard. Two years and two hundred five thousand dollars. What are they paying you people? Huh? This doesn't shock me at all. Two hundred five thousand. That's entitlements. That's BHA. He was getting a Hawaii BHA, by the way. That's significantly different than Michigan BHA. It's the same thing like out here in DC. BHA is higher. Uh, you know, there's certain parts of California where it's higher. Hawaii. It's very expensive to live in these places. So he was racking in a lot of money. Yeah. So depending on his rank, you know, E6. E6. You got E6 pay plus BHA. Um, any entitlements, all that other extra stuff. I'm not shocked that this like goes undetected. The systems Wait, the guard what? uses are so poor. It's because like it's the lowest different. contracting bidder gets these programs. And it's every state is different. They're a different yeah. system. So if he doesn't fill out the right paperwork, clearly there's no communication until they figure it out. But if you're getting what paid a, on the first and the fifteenth, and you're still getting the full pay that you were well, getting in Hawaii, here's what, here's what I'm saying to you. Here's, what, here's what I'm saying to you. You're talking about common sense and rationale. I believe rational. I believe he is keenly aware of what he's doing, and he's greedy, Abercrombie and Fitch AF, because he. <laughs> He put, in, reference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he put in a pay inquiry for his weekend warrior money. Yeah, so he was like, How come I'm not getting paid for that? How come not how come I'm not getting my 200 bucks when I'm when I'm getting 205,000 over two years? Like he shut his mouth. He probably could have gotten away with this for more years. And then he would have had like a million, half a million dollars worth of money i mean criminals aren't smart you know you you know at a certain like listen I, you know i'm i'm a service connected disabled vet and like when any any time my percentage changed right when my percentage changed significantly i saw money drop you know what lesson here for all the alphas don't touch that money trust but verify and make sure they're not gonna come back at it because i can tell you more recently despite having an increase in that rating right i knew better to touch that money because they came back and said, oh, we well, were actively drilling in this back pay period. So now they're like, hey, we want some of that money back. It's not a good system. And this is me being in the guard, doing a, a BDD claim before you get out, three, four months of years of fighting for it. And now they're still gonna take money back. And then they send me like 60, 90 days of stuff, 60, 90 days past the initial request. There are just lessons here that need to be learned. Like, do not touch that money. Like, if you see it and it's not right, act on it because they will come back for that money and you will be in big trouble. He obviously knew when he was getting paid first and 15, and that's his own fault. That's all I got. He's the big idiot. lesson here, I, I appreciate your lesson, but the, the overarching lesson here is don't be a dirtbag criminal. Because now you've stolen, and the threshold 
for severe punishment is only a thousand dollars when you're stealing from the government he could get up to 10 years and be asked to pay it all back he's never going to be able to pay it all back because he's going to have a criminal record he's not going to have a great job prospects um He's yeah, prob- he's still in, so he's probably going to get towards child support. Like it's child support bills, credit card debt. Like, could you just? But the thing is, he's still in, so he's not going to get a great discharge. At least I don't have to run into him at my American Legion post, Mister Mitsui. Uh, so Anywho, there, we we never have to just- talk. A nice transition, a, a, a different transition into to our guest because true. when we talk about moral and ethical responsibilities as human beings and good versus. Well, that's bad. why I chose this story because of the contrast. Yeah, oh, look yeah. at, that. Look at yeah, you yeah. being all forward thinking and whatnot. You know how I do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Holly's so shaking her head because she put the story in here. But We're um, have a, oh a no, I did. No, I did put the story in here. Why are you? I want to know why Holly's shaking her head at me like I didn't plan this contrast. Oh, yeah. I'm poetic all day, every day. I mean, let's be real. Like, poetic ever of you, bitch. Just, you just reflect on the world. We have to. All right. Here we go. Today, after Mr. Mitsui, we're going to do a 180 into the goodness of people. We're going to be joined by. Uh, Logan Isaac. Uh, Logan is an army veteran and is bringing his Christian beliefs about military service, not his, he's bringing Christian beliefs about military service into the 21st century. That's one we're living in. Uh, He's breaking down the bias and bad theology that isn't veteran friendly. He has a new book that challenges that bad theology titled, it's my favorite title of all time, God is a grunt. We're going to be back to learn more about God's infantry style after the break. Hoorah. Hua. Whatever else. Ah. Air Force is ooh and ah. I don't know. Oh. There's an ooh and ah on beanbag chairs. Join us for the 2022 100 Miles for Hope Challenge. Third American Legion Fitness Challenge will once again raise money for disabled veterans and military families in need. We've made improvements to the 2022 challenge. Monthly mini challenges. Department versus department challenges. And easier ways to track your miles. And we've made it easier for friends and families to support you with donations to the Veterans and Children's Foundation. Our goal for this campaign is to raise $450,000 for the foundation. But we're gonna need your help. It doesn't matter if you walk, run, ride, or swim. Just get active. Support our veterans and military families. And let's show the nation that we are Veterans Veterans Strengthening Strengthening America. All right, today we are joined by Logan Isaac, Logan, welcome to the Tango Alpha Lima experience. How's your day so far? Good. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I hope your day is about to get better. Um, 
we are, we, I'm going to let Ashley jump right in. Uh, she typically starts. That, that is correct. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, Logan, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you on. Um, so we just heard a little bit more about your bio and I saw that, you know, you, you've got a, you've got a fairly well-rounded, you know, military career. You're in from 2000, 2006. And, um, I wanted to just open it up about your, your time and service that's led you on the, the path that you are now and inspired you to write your book. Yeah. Um, so I joined in 2000. My dad, I come from a military family, but it wasn't a big part of what made our family. Um, my dad was Navy. He enlisted uh, during Vietnam. My grandfather flew supply planes in World War II, um, but he was too tall, so he couldn't fly combat jets or uh, aircraft. Um, and so I, I wanted to join for college. Um, and so I went to, I did the ASVAB, got really good scores, and I chose the best the highest paying job um, that they offered at the time, which was a 13 Foxtrot an artilleryman, uh, Ford Observer for the artillery. And it was a means to an end. Uh, I wanted to get out of Orange County, California, where I was from, and the, the Army gave me the opportunity to do it. So um, I, I enlisted in um, February of 2000, and I was in basic training when the USS Cole was bombed and everybody thought we were going to war. And then um, we didn't, went through airborne school, um, started as a paratrooper in the 82nd. And I was actually coming out of the field, um, getting a couple of teeth pulled at the dental clinic at Bragg when the towers fell on 9-11. And um, I never thought I would go to war. Um, and so we, we ramped up and uh, it turned out that the other two uh, brigades there were going to go before my brigade to uh, Afghanistan. And so I re-enlisted um, to go to school. Uh, I was going to go green to gold and make more money as an officer, get my ROTC scholarship, my Montgomery GI Bill, and just you know have a, a nice cushy life for myself. And I left Bragg in December of 2002. Yeah. And 10 days later, that unit, my unit deployed to Iraq for the invasion force. So I found myself in Schofield Barracks, Hawaii uh, with the 25th Infantry Division. And I was there for about a year before we deployed and relieved my old unit um, in Iraq. And when I was there, um, it was, I was introduced to what it meant to be an instrument of foreign policy. And in Iraq, Iraq was a different you know, battle zone than Afghanistan. And for someone, I went to youth group in high school and, and I always just kind of thought of myself as a Christian, but in combat, you know, I think for me, it, it ratcheted up what was important and what was not important. And I felt this deep sense of, you know, I call myself a Christian, but what does that mean? And I saw uh, an American soldier die uh, very slowly um, uh, due to combat triage. He, he was just, a low priority. And that really shook me to my core, um, thinking, wanting to think of myself as, as a good person, productive citizen, and struggling with the moral complexity of not just military service, but also combat deployment. And so when I got home, I was, I was overwhelmed by the sense of wanting to not be a hypocrite. And I wanted to either do the things 
that I was doing and be clear eyed about them or figure out what I could do that would allow me to be the kind of person I always told myself I, I wanted to be. And so I took um, classes in the New Testament and as an artilleryman, it found, I found it very difficult to reconcile the Beatitudes, like turn the other cheek and love your enemy. Um, and I read a bunch of um, theology and philosophy and nonviolence is compelling and um, persuasive, but I also, I also didn't buy the idea that was popular and remains popular that the military itself is the problem. Um, a lot of pacifist theologians um, that did then and still do have this idea that everybody in the military kills and that that's the overriding, perhaps only purpose of the military. And I spent six years in and I was an artilleryman. So that's a certain set of moral questions. Um, but like uh, our, our, our combat medics, our cooks, like they did not have the same experience I did. And a number of my best friends I lived with off base, um, they only touched their firearms for qualification once a year. Like it didn't jive with my own personal experience. And so um, I reached a point where I, I felt that I should remain or I should ask to leave the artillery, but I didn't feel called to ask for discharge as a conscientious objector. And so that kind of set me on this path of being in between these, it's kind of a false dichotomy between, you know, the progressive and conservative, you know, elements of the church. I, I desperately uh, did and still do want to be everything that it means to be, uh, as a, a, to be a Christian soldier. Um, and uh, it's, it's difficult, um, not just because... <laughs> partisanship in, in our own like kind of public discourse and politics. But, you know, in the church, it's, it's ratcheted up tenfold because we, we put God behind everything. Um, and so that's where I find myself now um, in between often polarizing conversations about what it means to be um, a Christian soldier, what it means to love God and country. Um, but I think it's a really important conversation to have. And it's one that I've committed my life to. It's very profound. Um, it's such a, it's such a, the way you describe it, it's, it's very, there's very like, um, how do I say it? It's both eloquent and purposeful. And I think it's fascinating that you came across all of these, these, I'm sure very, you know, refined moments where you really questioned everything you thought you knew. Um, I've always, thought about the concept of, of moral injury, right? Uh, I'm sure you've had you know, some, some form of conversation about that, but uh, with moral injury, as you go through the service and you know, depending on your leadership or where you're at or what job you have, there's sometimes this conflicting value system, right? There's an inconsistency with what we value and what we believe. Yeah. Right? So as you know, you're being ordered to do one thing your heart and your mind are telling you that doesn't seem right or you either you either like pick the later right like you either do it or you don't and there's consequences to both yeah and i think yeah. it's so interesting that you've you've really like sat on this this thought of this inconsistency with what we value what we believe and what it means to be you know a true devout you know 
person of, of religion, right? As a Christian, as you say, like I, I think it's fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of in awe right now. I'm kind of just thinking about my own experiences with religion and how my own experiences in the military, where I've had to have those hard internal moments of what is going on here and why yeah. do I feel this way? So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was actually, I was starting seminary as um, Rita Nakashima Brock and Gabriella Latini were starting, um, they, they held uh, the Truth Commission on Conscience and War. And I was a testifier there at the New York, the Riverside Church in New York. And I talked about my experience. Um, and one of the things that stuck with me was Tyler Boudreaux's line. He was another testifier and he wrote uh, Packing Inferno. And he wrote about this notion of possession. And it made me think uh, survivor's guilt is this interesting thing where I think in the United States, maybe Western imagination, we want to believe we're in control. And so if my buddy steps on an IED, I think I had control. I had some version of control over this. I should feel guilt. But the, the, the Christian terminology for moral injury is just guilt um and that can be overused and overplayed and and abused and misused um but guilt is is that thing that reminds us there's something we can do to make things better and that's a really important distinction from shame which is um you confuse your act with yourself shame is you become the embarrassing thing that people feel when they know what you've done. So like in the first chapter of God is a Grunt, I talk about Cain. And a lot of people read Cain as like the, the uh, prototypical killer. And get, he gets read into soldier stories a lot. Um, but the Bible always gives us something to learn from even the worst people. And one of the things that I think that we need to remember about Cain is that he was an improvement on his parents. When his parents screwed up, they got in a blame crossfire. They're like, well, my, my, the woman did it. And then the woman's like, the snake did it. And, and then when they receive the consequences, they take it as a punishment and they don't object. They're ejected from Eden. And one of the things I love about the, the Hebrew Bible is all the arguments that people get into with God. And so Cain, when he is confronted with the consequences of his actions, he, you know, he kills his brother and, and the curse doesn't come from God. The curse comes from the ground and the ground is almost like, yeah, I'm, I see what you're trying to do with your brother, like make him compost. Well, let's see how much, you know, your garden yields now, jerkwad. And so Cain says, he's the, instead of going off into the sunset and accepting his fate, he says, don't drive me from your face, God. He says, uh, depending on the translation, he says, my iniquity is too great. But the word iniquity is sin. He confesses in a way, in a way that his parents have not. He doesn't, he does not accept that the consequences should, or the, that it should be a punishment. The consequences there, the ground is not going to yield its fruit as easily because he tried to use his brother as, as fertilizer. Um, and so back to Boudreaux and possession, some of the things that we think we've done, we haven't actually done. So survivor's guilt is this, is this residual, it's not guilt. You don't have control over the things that you want to believe you have control over. Uh, so there's a, a, a woman, oh man, what's her name? I, I can't remember, but 
Um, she was a driver in Iraq. She has a new book out called Waging Peace. I just cannot remember her name. And she was there around the same time I was in Iraq. And I was, my platoon sergeant loved to have me drive. I don't know why. I'm an artilleryman. Why am I driving? But he loved to have me drive. And I got the same spiel that she talks about of people may try and push kids in front of you to slow down the convoy in a kill zone. And I was told, the same as she was, you may have to hit the kid. Now, on the one hand, I never actually had to make that decision. On the other, I probably wouldn't have hit the kid. I don't feel guilty or, or any kind of like moral injury over some decision I didn't actually ever have to make. And so when we are more careful about the things, thinking about the things we are complicit in, the things we do have control over, and that we either failed to intervene on or we um, did something wrong, we did intervene for the wrong reason or something. Um, I think that kind of careful attention is what uh, the church has called for and has, and has often prescribed, uh, you know, solution, not solution, interventions for. And so the ancient church, I didn't talk about, I, I had a draft chapter, it was just a little convoluted, um, but the early penitentials, those were, you know, forged in war when soldiers would come to their priest, who was essentially, you know, the, the, the town judge, and say, look, um, I've done this thing, and this is how I feel. And the priest would be like, okay, abstain from communion for 40 days. If, if you uh, were an archer, uh, three years, if you were a, 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 a frontline grunt, but there was something tangible and limited that directly addressed the thing you did. Um, and so we, there's not very many good resources on, you know, what does it look like to address moral injury or guilt in such a way that we remember that we aren't the thing that we have done. Cain was never a killer. He was a human being who killed, and then he suffered the consequences. Um, and so that it's a, it's a fine distinction, but I think it's there. And I think that, um, I think that it, it deserves greater attention to think about if there's an injury, what does it mean that, that one day that injury will heal, that it doesn't stay with us forever? Interesting. I think that's fascinating because, you know, I think the concepts of both, both good and evil are, are human constructs. And as we, as we discuss them in the theology perspective, I do think there is a lot of intersectionality by other systems that we have in place in our society, right? Civics in itself um, is, you know, is, is politics, it's policy, right? So as you, you said formally, it was, you know, you're a, you're a pawn in, in some ways, and then you're being asked to make decisions and then make those decisions on a value-based system that is both theology-based, but also based in social concepts. And I think as we peel those apart, it's, it's quite like an onion. And depending on who you're speaking with, right? Like some people are really superficial and, you know, I, I am this religion, I'm Christian, I'm Catholic, I am Jewish, I am, right? And then as we get deeper down into the root of that, it really poses, you know, the introspectual questions of like who we are as a society, who am I as an individual? So I think you, you raise some really great points and, you know, I think challenging bad theology and understanding that intersectionality of our society as a whole is so important. And in regards to your book, um, you know, as you were going through each of the chapters, were there, 
as you're through this draft process, were there certain values or those certain stories that you kind of just, you pick through to really hit that, that point home or are they individual standalone chapters of each value? Um, that's a good question. I have, I've often gravitated toward biography and there's a reason for that. I was actually, when I went to seminary, I really wanted to do virtue ethics and character. Um, and I know of William Bennett's book, uh, Virtue, uh, Character of Virtue, I can't remember what it is, but William Bennett has done some stuff with John McCain. Um, and so I, one of the books I hope to write in the future is The Virtues of War. Like what are the, what are the character aspects that military training create? What are the, the to use philosophical terms, what are the, um, the, the what's the telos What's the point of the military within a human institute, within human community? Um, for God as a grunt, um, I really had short stories in the Bible and then traditions in church history. So um, hagiography was one of the ones I cover with Martin of Tours, who's a third century um, soldier turned bishop. And um, I, I tell the story of monasticism and how that was formed with, you know, influenced by Martin. He was the first bishop who refused to live in the, the, the cathedral. He lived in a, a cave across the Loire River in Tour, France. Um, and he hated being in a big city. Um, and a lot of vets I talked to, you know, come from, you know, the South or something. And then they settle in the North in these highly ruralized settings like Montana or something. Um, or, uh, um, one of the other stories I tell is Pacomius of Thebes, who created communal monasticism, where it had been like individuals out in the desert, like St. Anthony. Um, and so it's more centered on stories and practices. Um, the Cain story is the first chapter. The second one I talk about, like the Levitical sacrificial system and how um, God is the goat. Um, there's two holidays uh, that Good Friday smashes together. Um, we just had, while we're recording this, we just had Good Friday and Easter. Um, and got in, in the, in the letters of John and gospel of John and revelation, there's this phrase, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the problem with that is there's no lamb that takes away the sins of the world. There's no baby sheep that does it. It's a goat. That's the Yom Kippur goat. And the difference between a sheep and a goat is important. I mean, I know a lot of cantankerous, uh, ornerous, uh, vets who like don't adhere to the sheepish, meek and mild kind of stereotype that we associate with sheep and frankly the hebrew scriptures are there with them uh jesus is the yom kippur goat who takes away the sins of the world um but i think i, I think it's an active and important question of what those virtues what those characteristics are that um military service creates in us um the the goods that are secured in uh having a military and also the, the excesses that I think um, can be attributed to them also. One of the chapters um, I talk about Joshua, who's the military commander um, in the end of sixth book of the Bible. And back in Genesis, we were literally told that or we were put in, on the earth to uh, Abad and Shamar, which is literally to serve and protect. Uh, Abad is servant or serve. And then Shamar is what Cain says, am I my brother's Shamar, am I his keeper? Am I his protector? So we are literally, as humans, made to serve and to protect. Um, but the person that came up with that motto was the 
daughter of an LAPD officer who came up with it in 1952 or something. And they were in LA in 1992 when the LA riots broke out after police officer four police officers brutally beat Rodney King. And she said, you aren't living up to your motto. If there's if there are bad soldiers and bad police officers, it also means there's good police officers and good soldiers. And that's another kind of element of what of what I hope to do is to kind of bring a highly polarized conversation back to center. Like there's there's moderating forces <laughs> that should be at work instead of saying, well, let's get rid of the police or let's you know think that the military is all evil or something like that's that's a little extreme. And I'm trying to call that out and and um, provide an alternative way of being more careful about our language and the way we think about not just soldiers, but the, the broader military, which I take to be first responders and law enforcement as well. I think that's really profound. And as, as far as you know, just the balance and sense and as far as balance goes, I know I need to toss it over to Jeff. So I know he's got some questions cooking over there. I think we're out of time. No, um, uh, you guys covered all of theology. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna have a couple comments and then move on to your advocacy piece. Uh, we have a whole show on moral injury. I, we had somebody a guest for that, so that would be a good one to compare and contrast with what you're saying here. Um, in terms of the guilt uh, and survivors' guilt, as from from for me, it's not always about control because I've recently discovered I have a little bit of survivor's guilt in the I'm not even supposed to be here anyway. So making bad decisions in my life based on I'm in extra time, uh, being in a helicopter crash and then uh, walking away from that. But then six months later, having the same exact scenario happen to other people and they all died. You know, you go through why did I survive and they die? It's not about control. It's just about uh, why was why was I saved and they weren't um, kind of scenario, which leads me to do all sorts of things like uh, not go to law school and go to Second City and learn improv and comedy instead. But uh, which my mother is, if she listens to this, she'll get mad all over again. But I want to get... Uh, back over to your advocacy piece because um, I was going to if you can s slip in how you came up with the title of your book that would be amazing but uh, we're, uh, we're we're past the book um, just real quickly how did how did you come up with that title it's an amazing title yeah um, it's also one of the chapters where I, where I talk about the New Testament and how um, civilian bias pacifist bias has um, done a poor job of interpreting soldiers of scripture. And that's probably going to be my next immediate book, um, talking about uh, the, when the gospels were written, it was under a time of uh, uh, occupation and persecution by Rome after the temple fell. But when Jesus, is, Jesus was walking around doing his thing, there were no legionaries, there were no forces in Judea. Uh, Galilee had his own military. And so some of the soldiers you encounter, the centurion of great faith, who I call Captain Marvel, um, he would have been, you know, possibly childhood friends with Jesus. Like they were not light-skinned foreigners; they were just people doing their job. Um, and so the the title of the book and the title of the chapter is the or the full title is "If Jesus is God, God is a Grunt," 
Um, and we all know that grunts are kind of at the bottom of the, the totem pole, the social totem pole. Um, but everybody wants to be like them. Everybody has, you know, to some extent wants to kind of throw out their grunt bona fides. Um, but more importantly, grunt is one who does all this thankless work, who's willing to do anything and everything it takes to complete the mission. And Jesus, as God, um, who is called a warrior as they leave uh, Egypt, um, God is, or Jesus is the divine warrior who wears the armor of God. Um, you know, when Jesus goes up to his execution, he's wearing a tunic that the Gospel of John says was not torn and was seamless. Well, that's the high priest's tunic. So he goes up as the high priest. But in Exodus 28, verse 4, it talks about how the tunic was made, was supposed to be made like a like a coat of mail, literally, you know, a, a defense, you know, a, a not plate armor, but chain mail. And so as he's going up to be crucified, he's going uh, ready for battle. Um, and so if Jesus is God and Christians believe that he is, then God is a grunt. That is the kind of soldier he is. He's a man of war, according to Exodus 15:3. But what kind of soldier he is, um, he leads from the bottom. He takes all the shit that rolls downhill um, that the lowest enlisted typically catch. And so, you know, that God is a grunt um, is good news for GIs, um, many of whom, you know, I think the average time of service is under six years. Um, it's difficult to find the average rank for in people receiving VA care, but it's, you know, enlisted members are outnumber officers by like five to one. And so the kind of soldier that Jesus is, is the kind of guy that takes and executes orders as opposed to typically giving them, at least in Jesus, like the Old Testament is there's some distinction, but that's that's where the, the title came from. Interesting. So that kind of rolls right into the your advocacy. Uh, you just spoke of people who need advocating for. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your advocacy work. Yeah, the last two chapters of God is a Grunt, um, the last like numbered main chapter, I, I talk, I profile people and stories, whether that's Martin of Tours, Pacomius of Thebes, Joan of Arc. Um, the last one is Ralph Abernathy, who, um, whose feast day in, the, in Christianity, the feast day is when someone is deposited into the earth. And um, Ralph died April 17th, uh, which was Easter this year. And Ralph Abernathy was Martin Luther King's second in command. He was a platoon sergeant, World War II. He was medically discharged after he came down with it wasn't dysentery, but it was something. They got to Europe and they had some combat engagements, but then he got sick and they, he, uh, he was medically discharged and his entire unit was killed later, I think in the Pacific, which they weren't ready to fight in. Um, but Ralph um, was a lot, you know, he was best friends with Martin. And he, he kind of has lost some of his luster in the civil rights movement because he was a little bit diverse. He, I think he, um, he endorsed Ronald Reagan for president. Um, and in his autobiography, he talked about how Martin Luther King was, he was human. Uh, the night before he was killed, he may have been cheating on his wife. And we want our saints to be sterile. We want them to be, you know, up on a, a hill transfigured. And that's not the kind of saint that I think the Christian church um, historically has, has venerated. Um, but the advocacy, I, I became interested in the civil rights movement and its intersection with military history. Um, the, the people that we're most familiar with, Rosa Parks, 
um, even Claudette Colvin, all of them came after a, a kind of a, a first wave of agitators and dissenters who were in the military. Um, Rosa Parks and uh, the Freedom Rides wouldn't have been possible without PFC Sarah Keys, who was um, on her way home on leave from Fort Dix down to her home in North Carolina when she was forced to give up her seat and she was arrested and she didn't want to fight it, but her Navy World War II veteran father insisted that she fight it. And so she filed a complaint with the um, uh, Interstate C Commerce Commission and that went all the way up to the top and the rule um, uh, the, it's not the Supreme Court, but Keys v. Carolina Coach became, uh, uh, it integrated um, bus terminals. And before that, Irene Morgan, who was a Rosie, who was building B-26 Marauders in Baltimore, the same thing happened to Irene Morgan. Um, and she fought it and went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Morgan v. Virginia and Keys v. Carolina Coach were the backbone of the civil rights movement. Without them, um, they wouldn't have had the freedom rights because there would have been low, no law to enforce. What they were doing was asking um, the, the states to enforce these two laws whose plaintiffs were World War II, uh, World War II, I'm sorry, Morgan was a Rosie, Keys served during uh, Korea. And it goes back even further than that. Jackie Robinson was court-martialed after uh, refusing to give up a seat in an integrated army chartered bus on Fort Hood. Um, it forced him out of the military, he didn't get to deploy. And so there's this long history of soldiers securing these, these civil rights victories that enable the civil rights movement as we know it. And um, one of the things that I've been wrestling with lately is the a King's anti-war speech, uh, Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. In it, he refers to soldiers, or he refers to the military um, in a troubling way for me, at least. Um, he says this business of bringing uh, people back from bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged. And Abernathy was there. I don't know how a World War II veteran heard this reference to him and other combat vets as psychologically deranged. Um, but now there's a contemporary movement to revive uh, Abernathy's Poor People's Campaign, campaign 1968, which itself was built on Cox's army and the bonus army of 1931 and 1932, where they camped out and uh, then they were driven off by active duty soldiers. So the military history of the civil rights movement isn't getting told. Um, and on uh, beside that or in tandem to that is there's a number of civil rights that are on paper that are not being enforced and don't even seem uh, to be known by the agencies that have jurisdiction for them. So for example, uh, the Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. Um, nobody seems to know, including the Department of Justice and FBI, uh, or the United States Commission on Civil Rights, seems to know that service members and their families were provided the exact same benefits or protections from hate crimes. Um, Section 4712 did everything that the wider HCPA did, but that law, which became Title 18, Section 1389, um, has never been enforced by DOJ, um, has never, the DOJ has never provided guidance for any sub agencies like the FBI, um, but hate crimes against military families are occurring. In 2017, I think, or 2016 or 17, um, there's an American citizen who planned uh, to behead an entire military family in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
And the family was alerted and moved uh, before the plan could be um, enacted. Um, but that person was charged for domestic terrorism because it's easier to secure a conviction. Hate crimes are hate crimes because of the character, the, the characteristic that is uh, that leads somebody to select a target. Hate crimes protect entire communities because it's the community really that's targeted. Matthew Shepard, who it was named for, he was just murdered, right? Well, no, he was targeted for violence because of his membership in a community. And so when we don't enforce these when we don't enforce hate crimes, there's no deterrence for military families. Um, and the DOJ, because it doesn't seem to be aware of the law, provides no means of reporting any suspected allegations, any assault or, or injury or loss of property by military families. They can't report it because the DOJ doesn't seem to know about it. Um, the other big one is employment uh, opportunities. Uh, 1974 affirmative action was created for some veterans uh, in government contracts. The law is called uh, the Vietnam Era Veterans Readjustment Assistance Act. And VEVRA um, created affirmative action for, and it now basically creates affirmative action for everyone except peacetime non-disabled veterans, which statistically would benefit the most from employment protections. Um, but VEVRA was written in such a way that the only time it was ever challenged in court in Greer v. Chow in 2007, um, retired Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said it's no law at all because there's no meaningful standard against which it can be um, adjudicated by the courts. Um, and currently, um, enforcement data shows conclusively that the Department of Labor receives uh, more VEVRA complaints by veterans than any other statute it enforces. Its enforcement arm, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, um, receives more VEVRA complaints than anything else, but veterans and their complaints are turned down almost four times as much as those other statutes. And uh, justice and injustice are, are a chain. They're only as strong as their weakest link. If someone, for example, says, uh, you know, I'm going to deny you employment, um, you know, if John, if you're, um, or Jeff, if you're doing trying to get employment and they said, well, I'm not going to hire a veteran, but you suspect that it's because you're black. It's totally legal for them to deny you employment because you're a veteran. Um, there's no way to enforce VEVRA unless you're a government contractor, unless the department of labor does their job and they don't seem to be doing that. Um, so the advocacy piece has kind of grown out of this, um, the, my kind of broader mission um, for this uh, thing that I created, I call Pew Pew HQ, is human dignity for soldiers and veterans. And human dignity is not only listening and understanding and appreciating the humanity of soldiers and veterans, but also working to secure and protect that human dignity in civil rights. And so Pew Pew HQ, I, I do education and advocacy um, that promotes human dignity for soldiers and veterans. Um, and some of the lowest hanging fruit is this advocacy stuff, getting uh, my Congressman, Jamie Raskin is the chair for the subcommittee on government oversight um, and civil liberties and civil uh, rights. And I've asked him to have a subcommittee hearing to talk about VEVRA, to talk about the Hate Crimes Prevention Act and talk about other loopholes that soldiers and veterans are falling through. The Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity Office in HUD doesn't protect veterans. The EEOC, which is created by World War II veteran JFK, doesn't protect veterans, um, and all it takes is a bill. Uh, the, I, I suspect it would pass, but 
my former Congressman David Trone, before I moved um, within Frederick County, has he wrote a letter signed by other congressmen asking the Department of Justice why they don't seem to be enforcing uh, the HCPA for service members. Um, and it was ignored by FBI Director Christopher Wray and then Attorney General William Barr. Um, but the, I mean, we, we only get, sometimes it feels like what we pay for, like the, sometimes I hear other vets talk about, you get what you pay for when you go to the VA. Well, we aren't speaking up uh, or we, when we do, we get, you know, kind of put in these boxes of angry veteran or fill in the blank. Um, so advocacy is about human dignity and how our institutions and organizations secure and protect that, that human dignity. Well, Logan, I think maybe uh, one, of the, one of the alphas out there, a legionnaire alpha might write a resolution to uh, get some uh, legion attention on uh, some of this uh, military civil rights stuff. Uh, I want to make sure we quickly uh, figure out how people can get in touch with you, learn more about the, the topics that you're talking about. And I know I'm going to recommend the book, your book to my uh, post chaplains. So Donna Calloway, Rocio Palmero, you've got some reading to do. Um, and uh, I want everyone out there to be able to get some of this information. So where can they find it? Yeah, my um, my personal website, imloganmi.com. Uh, that's just kind of an archive of the stuff that I've done. Um, pewpewhq.com is the online hub for a lot of stuff. Um, I've created a, a private social network I call Pew Pew Crew that's for and by Christian soldiers where nobody's selling your information. It's just a place where um, you can interact and engage with other Christian soldiers, both actual like soldiers and veterans, but also Christians who um, assume the mantle of this good fight that, that Paul calls us to, to wage. Um, and that's at um, uh, pewpewcrew.com. I also do online learning at pewpewschool.com. Um, and then I have a, a Substack newsletter, pewpew.substack.com, which I call the post. Um, but the, the advocacy stuff is all under its own little thing at gijustice.com. Um, I believe that as a Christian, I'm called to um, love the least and lost and also um, work for justice and walk humbly before God. And so um, the GI justice stuff doesn't require any kind of faith. I mean, the Pew Pew Crew does, doesn't either, but um, it's a place where uh, what I call um, high church low lives can come and be spiritual, but also religious, um, where you can have kind of a, a, a deep conversation about what it means to be a Christian soldier, what it means to be a good person, a person of goodwill um, in a world that, you know, it's sometimes hard to navigate uh, with the experiences that we accumulate as soldiers and veterans, um, it's, it's, the journey is made easier when it's together. Um, and so uh, Pew Pew Crew is a place where you can meet and, and kind of have uh, conversations that are not safe, but good, I hope. Okay, so you said it's a new book, I assume it's finished and available for yeah. Amazon Actually, and bookstores everywhere? Recording. Yeah. What's that? Uh, the day we're recording is the official release date. Um, I'm going to go from here to my local Barnes and Noble that I grew up at getting books from. And oh, yeah, actually, that's it right there. God is a grunt and more good news for GIs uh, just released today. And it's available wherever your books are sold. 
Yep, that's today in uh, April, but this will show in May. Yeah. Uh, so I want to thank you for uh, the blend of philosophy and theology that you brought to us today. And uh, I'm going to have everybody go out there and get God is a Grunt. Or if you're looking for the book on the web, I believe it's Grunt God. Right? Gruntgod.com. Yep. Yeah, Gruntgod.com. And for all of my alphas out there, somebody write a resolution about civil rights for military and veterans. And all you chaplains out there, get the book so that you can understand uh, your Christian soldiers a little bit better. And please, alphas, come back after this break. Honoring those who came before us. The American Legion pays perpetual respect for all past military sacrifices to ensure they are never forgotten by new generations. We are veterans strengthened in America. We are the American Legion. Wow, he was he had a lot of information, huh, Ashley? Yeah, I reset that. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was really very interesting. The the theological debate with the intersectionality of politics and the human experience is incredibly powerful. And depending, obviously, you know, what the basis of your religious experience and what you grew up with, I think both shapes your value system. And then you add any of the values that are, you know, you know bestowed upon us as, as service members, right, to each of the respective branches. So in the Army, my acronym was leadership, loyalty, duty, respect, selfless service, integrity, personal courage, right? So like, those were kind of my core tenets or my pillars, just as the American Legion has their four pillars, right? Like these are how we frame our experience. So I thought Logan did a really interesting job of re kind of just captivating what it means to be on the front lines of, of advocacy as well as um, just in this theological discussion because they're so, aw, question? No, no, I was hoping that we wouldn't have to recap the entire episode because we spent hours talking about this just minutes ago. Minutes ago. Anyway, my wholehearted opinion, I thought it was really fascinating and I enjoy history and theology and as someone who in basic training went to every possible religious service. I think that there's a lot to be said about human nature and how we describe our experiences through life. Go on, Jeff. Let's get into Robert Ford. <laughs> As much like the interview, I don't have time to reflect on our guest. Um, we are now going to move into, hopefully, pew, 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 rapid. R-A-P-I-D is our acronym. Really accelerated conversations people in discussion. That's what rapid is. Okay. Rapid fire number one. Navy brings new software online in time for sailors' fitness testing season. A new software program that tracks Navy sailors' physical fitness tests have arrived just in time for this year's testing session, according to the Navy. A delayed software delivery pushed the Physical Readiness Information Management System 2, or PRIMS 2, rollout into April, the month the new physical fitness testing season began, according to spokeswoman for the Navy Personnel Command. 
PRIMS2 allows fitness leaders to record fitness data and sailors to view their fitness scores. Now, this is the important part to me. Sailors may access their physical fitness information through a program called My Navy. Anybody ring a bell? Uh, a web portal that combines many of the service human resources and other career information. I, uh, my Legion, My Navy, uh, I wonder if it's the same company. So I just, uh, <laughs> right. Um, they're they're going to have some upgrades to do if that's the case. So uh, what do you think of the software upgrade? Well, I'm happy they're getting a, a software program that tells them what their scores are. I mean, I feel like as an individual, you should be tracking your own scores and you should know. But also, like, as an army gal, most of this would just be imputed, like, it would just be put into your, I just, this was not my experience. And this just seems a little like behind the, the curve, but hey, if it's working for the Navy, it's working for the Navy. But I feel like the Army folks are already doing this stuff. So what Army has an app? I don't know. So so the Army would have their what was the APFT, the Army Physical Fitness Test. And you could one, you could calculate and wasn't mistaken. Um, you know, you could keep like every time I had to do the Army Physical Fitness Test. I had that app. I could calculate. Uh, I could check body composition in that calculator. Um, you know, we had our, our our standard forms and stuff that we would have to fill out and file. But most of that data got inputted into um, whatever system it was. I probably just don't remember. But we had to input all of that. So all of that went into your like military records, and it was trackable through any of the military portals that we would Well, in the Marine Corps, we used an abacus mm -hmm. and a drill instructor would tell you, you were disgusting and need to work out more. That's basically <laughs> all we have. It was like a, slide, a sliding grade growth. <laughs> yeah, growth like less, no, less no, no, no. Okay, no. <laughs> we're going to hopefully rapid fire number pew pew two. Again, this is a commercial for legiontown.org. We are taking a story from there every week so if you contribute content, uh, maybe we'll pick it up. If you email that you contributed content, we'll know about it and we'll go look for it. If it's not terrible, we'll use it. This little secret from me to my alphas. Okay. Let's talk to the alphas. Talking to the alphas. Shh. Don't tell anybody. Okay. Anyone's okay. watching the video, it looks like he's like whispering. All right. Post 731, California 731, by the way makes all World War II, Korean, and Vietnam War post members honorary life members. This is submitted by adjutant Carrie Cortinas, California Post 731. On March 12th, aboard the USS Midway, Post 731 officers commemorate a, they wrote a, an historic move by the membership of the Post to provide honorary life membership in the American Legion to all World War II, Korean, and Vietnam-era veterans who are members of Post 731. Three Post members from each era were chosen to receive their respective war ball caps and representing uh, their members. The officers and members enjoyed a tour and luncheon aboard the aircraft carrier provided by the Post, 
Well done, my friends. In making the presentation, Commander Nikolai Camarado, I didn't know that was, I only know him as Nick, and Iraq Afghanistan combat veteran declared that post 731 honors those who came before us and continue to fight for those serving in the future. I just, I want a commercial that says that, that last part. And hearts and hugs for them. There we go. Love it. That's great. Whoa. Ash is like here. She said wrap it. Let's 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 she'd go big or, or get on out. Okay. Ashley, what since we're done now, why don't you just take yeah. us home? All right. So don't forget to subscribe to the Tango Alpha Lima podcast on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume more podcasts. Please leave us a review and give us a big old five-star rating so that the world knows how much you adore us. And, and Jeff Daly specifically, he could use some love. If you do have a guest recommendation, whether that's yourself, someone you know, an outstanding service member who you think would be a great guest and someone we'd love to speak with, go to legion.org backslash Tango Alpha Lima and click on the suggested guest link. Uh, yeah. All right. So send it. Send it. I have a I have a little PSA that I have to get out there. It can be lonely at the top. <laughs> That's so, Jeff. <laughs> it so. can be. <laughs> it's not very PSA right now. <laughs> it is. It's lonely up here at the top, being an alpha, as you know. But does it have to be? Share the spot. Holly, turn yourself off. Holly's making <laughs> share this podcast today with a deserving alpha bit. That's what I'm calling pre-alphas. They're a little bit alpha with a deserving alpha bit. So they too can get in on the conversation you are having in the Tango Alpha Lima experience. Please don't leave us all lonely here at the top, being just the only alphas that we know. It's, it's important. And with that, alphabet, not alphabet. We're not trying to promote Yeah, alphabet. Alpha They're a little bit alpha until we get them in here and then they'll become a full alpha. Beautiful. Yeah, there's going to be t shirts about this. All right, with that, I'm going to go ahead and declare season three, episode 106, barely, barely mission complete. Woo!